I'm Leonard Lopate. Six months after 9-11, CIA and FBI agents captured Abu Zubaydah, whom they believed to be al-Qaeda's third in command. Instead of placing him under military custody in accordance with international law, the CIA sent him off to secret black sites where he underwent what has come to be called euphemistically enhanced interrogation. In their latest book, The Forever Prisoner, British journalists Kathy Scott Clark and Adrian Levy traced the legal justifications that were applied for the use of torture and reveal how enhanced interrogation became a key weapon in the global war on terror over the following seven years, affecting dozens of detainees in a number of locations, some of whom died. The book is published by Atlantic Monthly Press and brings Kathy Scott Clark to our show now. Welcome. Hello, nice to be here. Some argued that the methods you write about in this book would save the United States after 9-11. How effective were they? Um, they weren't effective at all because people who were subjected to enhanced interrogation um, made up stories just to get the what was generally called torture to stop. So a lot of false leads were created, a lot of time and manpower and money was wasted by the CIA and the FBI and other um, law enforcement agencies chasing down leads that just were not true at all. So was the CIA's enhanced interrogation program, which we're now calling torture, legal? According to the um, you, what is famously called the U Bybee memo, um, which took four months to put together in the summer of 2002, while Abu Zubaydah was being held in um, a black site in Thailand, um, the enhanced interrogation techniques were technically legal. But if you deconstruct the case that the CIA presented to the Justice Department in order to get that memo, um, I would suggest that actually it was not legal because um, the CIA lied on multiple fronts to the Justice Department from mischaracterizing Abu Zubaydah as number three in al-Qaeda and planner and financier of 9-11 to misrepresenting the fact that um, nobody had been harmed in the U.S. military um, SEER survival school program on which enhanced interrogation was based. Um, I mean, there are multiple um, accusations, sorry, multiple CIA allegations that turned out not to be true. Um, And the lawyers in the Justice Department signed off on the techniques pretty reluctantly, actually, um, on the basis of misinformation. Now, Abu Zubaydah was sent to a secret black site in Thailand. Why there? Because uh, it was a very last-minute scramble um, to find somewhere to take him, to find a friendly country, a country friendly to the United States, um, that would be, A, willing to take him, B, would be able to find a, a an anonymous-looking location that didn't look like a prison, wasn't on a military um, um, facility um, in which they could create a black site that nobody would notice. And it came down to a personal um, friendship between a um, very senior official in the CIA um, and the head of Thai Special Branch, with whom the CIA was already working on a number of other um, post-9-11 investigations. 
and um, I interviewed the senior CIO official who rang up the head of Thai Special Branch and said, we need a favour. Um, and um, he said, well, I've got a holiday home in Chiang Mai. Um, why don't you use that? It's out in the jungle. No one ever goes there. Everyone knows it belongs to me. And, um, and you, can, you can have it for however long you want it. Well, the book uh, charts his 20-year-long detention story um, from uh, Thailand, Chiang Mai, to Poland, to Strawberry Fields at Gitmo, to Morocco, to Lithuania, Gitmo again. So uh, was enhanced interrogation conducted in all of those sites? Um, no, not well, not on him. Um, but, well, mind you, you could say yes. I mean, in, in terms of when you talk about enhanced interrogation, if we're talking about the coercive techniques like waterboarding and walling um, and extended sleep deprivation, um, those those techniques were only used on Abu Zubaydah in Thailand. Um, when he got to Poland, the second black site, he was subjected to other techniques which were described as non-coercive but still pretty nasty um, and um, he was constantly reminded and, and uh, up until 2009 that there could be a return to enhanced techniques at any stage but for other detainees um, Abu Zubaydah's um, treatment became the template so the enhanced techniques like waterboarding and walling <clears throat> were used on um, all of the 14 high value detainees that the CIA transferred to um, officially to um, Department of Defense custody in Guantanamo in 2006. The CIA argued that Abu Zubaydah had been trained to resist interrogation and was withholding vital clues, so it authorized James Mitchell, a retired Air Force psychologist, uh, uh, and some others, uh, to do the interrogation and also to use enhanced interrogation techniques. Now, uh, why... James Mitchell, because he uh, he had already had experience in this area. He had been Dr. Mitchell had been a um, a very um, successful um, military psychologist in the U.S. Air Force, and he had um, a, a spotless record of running the psychological side of the SEER program, Survival Evasion. I can't remember it. <laughs> Survival Escape Evasion. Um, and he um, he had amazing. It's, it's uh, serious. Survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. Yeah, thank you for correcting me. I always get it jumbled up. But he had um, he had a 21 year um, faultless, spotless record, and um, and I've, I've seen his um, his annual um, assessment. So he had he had been uh, working teaching American service members how to behave after they've been captured by the enemy uh, as a way to uh, resist torture, and now they um, were they decided to reverse engineer his survival training courses. He and his uh, his partner Bruce Jessen. Well, he 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 always argues that it was, there was no reverse engineering. I mean, his argument is that he was um, already, he, he retired from the Air Force in July 2001, and he then had, he'd already done a little bit of contracting for the CIA on um, understanding the psychology of potential enemies and terrorists. And, um, and after 9-11, he, put, he rang up the CIA and said, like many other people, wanted to get involved and, and be part of the response, um, which I can perfectly understand. 
And he um, started doing some work for the CIA at that point. And in December 2001, getting back to your reference to the resistance training that Abu Zaydah allegedly um, was an expert in, um, in December 2001, um, Jim, as I call him, um, was asked to assess, Jim Ambrose was asked to assess an al-Qaeda resistance training, well, an al-Qaeda training manual of which there was a chapter about what to do if you get captured and what to expect, what kind of things are going to happen to you and how to avoid giving up secrets. But wasn't there an initial goal to frighten terror suspects into a state of what was called learned helplessness that would encourage them to reveal all their secrets? Uh, Well, this this is where things get a little bit jumbled up because resistance training on the part of al-Qaeda operatives it got sort of mixed up in 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 the kind of dis- discussion with um, a a very well known theory called learned learned helplessness, which was developed by Professor Martin Seligman in um, in uh, Philadelphia, and um, learned helplessness was was initially um, carried out affected by experiments on dogs, which were put into like an electrified run, half of which was electrified, the other half wasn't with a small sort of jump in the middle and dogs would would sort of jump into the safe bit. But dogs that were repeatedly electrified and couldn't jump into the safe bit if they put up a, a barrier, when they took the barrier down, you could see that the dog stopped trying to help itself. So it had learned helplessness. It couldn't effectively help itself. It gave up. And this was the idea that the CIA um, locked onto and decided was um, uh, was the way to get allegedly resistance-trained al-Qaeda operatives to give up their secrets. Uh, the, uh, the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, was under immense pressure after the September 11th attacks. Did it instruct government lawyers to rewrite the rule book because it would have violated U.S. and international laws if, if they hadn't? Uh, they gave the CIA lead authority to capture and detain terrorism, uh, terrorism suspects with an understanding that the gloves are off? Yes. Um, I mean, that, to unpack all of that, I mean, um, the president gave a memorandum of notification to um, the CIA three days after 9-11, giving um, the CIA, sorry, six days after 9-11, giving the CIA um, lead authority to capture and detain high-value um, suspects who um, might know about the second wave, which the CIA was, was very concerned about, as was the whole administration. Um, and, um, and after that, CIA lawyers started looking at what kind of methods could be used that did not break things like the Geneva Conventions. Um, and then um, in the February of 2002, the president was persuaded by George, George Tenet, the director of Central Intelligence, to um, abandon the Geneva Conventions when it came to war on terror prisoners who were not prisoners, they were detainees or enemy combatants or enemy belligerents. So a lot of um, words were rewritten. Um, and um, the initiative the initiative for the whole uh, idea of taking the gloves off, which obviously is the phrase that was borrowed from, from Dick Cheney, who was very much a proponent of taking the gloves off, but the uh, initiative for, for enhanced interrogation came from the CIA. So that included waterboarding, sleep deprivation, confinement in coffin-sized boxes, 
Um, since these were secret operations, how were you and Adrian Levy able to learn what had occurred at these black sites in Thailand, Poland, and elsewhere, and trace the, the twisted legal justifications that were used? Well, I mean, first off, I should say we, we were not the, never the first people to look into this. I mean, this has been a story that has been developing, I think, right back to the first reports about the CIA keeping um, war on terror detainees at, at secret locations goes back to probably 2003, 2004, Dana Priest. Um, and Jane Mayer um, first wrote about um, the idea that the CIA was using learned helplessness in secret locations against detainees. But Jane Mayer interviewed James Mitchell for the, the New Yorker. Very briefly, yes. Um, and he, he described to me um, how, how that interview happened. He was sitting in the car park outside Langley with a CIA chaperone when she rang, and, and he had to sort of answer her questions while looking at the chaperone who's sitting in the I'm not sure who was in the driving seat and who was in the passenger seat but they were literally sitting in a car um, but, but I guess what, what, what we wanted to do was to hear from the man himself as well but in much greater detail so um, I went to see Jim first of all in February 2017 and I doorstepped him and um, he said he, he would call the FBI on me if I didn't get off his property um, we had a, a, a tiny connection in that I put myself and Adrian had previously written a book about some hostages in Kashmir, Americans and British and German hostages who were taken in 1995 by a very early um, Isla, Islamist um, group and never got home. And one of those hostages was a friend of Jim's. Um, he was a, a psychologist in Spokane where Jim lived, not military, he worked in a hospital. So anyhow, Jim um, rang me back was late the same day um, in February 2017 and said come over and um, we um, met many many times after that and um, and he was very helpful and very interesting and um, relatively open about what he'd done you conducted uh it, did it help that you were British? Uh, because you conducted extensive interviews with interviewers, um, but also you, you found testimony from secret hearings, classified documents that were made public through FOIA lawsuits. Well, I, I don't know about being British. You'd have to ask Jim. Um, but um, in terms of the declassified um, documents, that 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 is work um, that was done um, by uh, Ray Bonner, who I was working with on the documentary film with Forever Business. And um, we successfully um, obtained a huge number of, of newly declassified CIA documents pertaining to the program. Um, and I put those documents, cables and reports, I put those together with everything else that was already sort of in the public domain, from um, ACLU suits to um, suits brought by um, defence teams in the Guantanamo cases. So I had this huge stack of of, of um, declassified documents, um, which I put into complete chronological order. And well, once you had all of the different sources in one place, the, the, there was a much bigger, fresher, clearer picture of what had actually happened in, in the black sites. But of course, as became clear, um, some of the most um, awful things were never, never written down. Well, some, um, of, some of your sources remain secret. You interviewed a man you called Gus in the book, uh, mm -hmm. who, who he orchestrated uh, much of the rendition operation, but we still don't know his name, right? No, no, and, I, and I'm not, not prepared to give his name. 
Um, but um, yeah, he, he didn't orchestrate the rendition. He, he was the chief of the department, so he he ran the department um, that built all the black sites, except for the first one in Thailand, because he hadn't been appointed then, and organised all the rendition flights, and um, and also um, uh, considered and affected what would be the what the CIA call the end game facility, which is like what, what do you do with all these guys when you when you tortured them because obviously they're still alive hopefully um, and we need to put them somewhere so, so that was his job was to work out where to put these people so effectively he set up Camp 7 in Guantanamo which is where they remained um, with a couple of extra additions until April last year when they were transferred into the main Camp America um, site at Guantanamo I'm speaking with Kathy Scott Clark, co-author with Adrian Levy of The Forever Prisoner, the full and searing account of the CIA's most controversial covert program. Uh, it is published by uh, Atlantic Monthly Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Uh, we are uh, also streaming live at uh, WBAI.org. Um, let's backtrack. Uh, on March 28, 2002, a joint team of FBI and CIA officers accompanied by the Pakistani police raided a house in the city of Faisalabad. And although the suspects tried to flee, a Palestinian was shot badly, badly wounded. Uh, that was Abu Zubaida. And President uh-huh. George W. Bush soon announced his capture as one of the first big victories on the war on terror. They said he was number three in al-Qaeda, a financier and, and planner of the September 11 terrorist attacks. So what happened? Well, I mean, Bush announced it as, as the first big victory, but as John Rizzo, the former general counsel of the CIA, and Jose Rodriguez, who was the chief of the Cannes Terror Centre, both said to me, it was the, the only victory they'd had six months after 11, sorry, six months after 9-11, um, because Abu Zubayda, sorry, Osama bin Laden had disappeared at Tora Bora, and uh, Zawahiri, number two, um, had, was also missing. They, I mean, the, the US military had succeeded in killing number three in Al-Qaeda, who was Abu Hafsal Madri. But um, so when Abu Zubayda was in the wrong place at the wrong time, so when they captured him, um, they they put everything on him. Um, I mean, he, he had not been particularly sensible um, in that he had a video with him in, on his person in his briefcase, in which he which he made in I think January December January 2001 2002, three months from his capture. And in this video, he, he, he congratulated the Sheikh Osama bin Laden for the 9/11 attack. The, uh, um, the the videotapes uh, of his, of his torture were destroyed in 2006. Yes, uh, but I'm talking about a video that he made himself, uh-huh. um, congratulating the, the 9/11 attacks, which was captured with him, and it made him look extremely guilty um, and, and complicit in 9/11. But, but it's a no. much the reality is a much more complicated story than that. Well, this, this story is complicated in many ways because it all, there was also an interagency uh, conflict between the FBI and the CIA. Yes, um, that, and that, I mean, that's, I think it's well known that that, was, that preceded 9-11, and some people claim that that, that contributed to that, that 9-11 actually happened. But, um, yes, it, the whole thing flared up again in Thailand as soon as Abu Zubaydah was captured because although the CIA had secured the um, authority from the president in September, 
2001 to um, to take the lead when they actually captured their first high-value detainee. Um, they hadn't set up an interrogation team. They didn't have any interrogators, and the first and, and Abbas Vader was almost bleeding to death and mm. very not expected to survive. So the first team that was sent out to Thailand to interrogate him was from the FBI, accompanied by CIA personnel, but not CIA personnel who knew anything about Al Qaeda or him. Now he was implicated on some level, although he was he was really a mid-level jihadi, despite being accused of being a top Al Qaeda leader. Uh, but didn't he? Uh, uh, give uh, the FBI some valuable information, including the identity of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? Yes, he did. Um, he, he, I mean, Ali Sufan, who was one of the FBI agents on the ground, um, tells a very good story of how they um, actually were trying to get him to identify somebody else um, on, uh, on their palm pilot version of their photo book, as they call it. And, and the person, Steve Gavin, who was the other FBI agent in the room with Ali, uh, clicked on the wrong picture, and the picture was of um, Khalid Shah Mohammed. And, um, and they were confused because, because Abu Zubaydah said, said, this isn't the person you're looking for, this is Mukhtar, which is one of Khalid Shah Mohammed's um, uh, acronyms, uh, sorry, uh, one of his, um, his, his um, pseudonyms. And um, and through the next conversation, they established that Mukhtar was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and Mukhtar was the um, was the uh, mastermind of 9/11. So that's a, that's a pretty huge piece of um, mm-hmm. success work. Well, that was FBI agents. Uh, one of them yes. uh, was a Lebanese-born man named Ali Soufan, who was fluent in Arabic and quickly built a rapport with Abu Zubaydah. So how did the CIA get involved in this operation? Uh, wasn't oh. George Tenet, who was then the CIA director, um, furious when he found out that the, it was the FBI's operation and not the CIA's? Yes, I mean, there's a couple of things there. First of all, um, Abdi Bader would, would contest that he did not have a rapport with Ali Soufan um, because I was able to speak to him through um, written communication and, um, and he, isn't, he doesn't tell quite the same story of Ali Soufan. But uh, yes, George Tenet um, was very happy when news came back from Thailand that their first high value detainee had uncovered un, un, um, that um, Kalachek Mohammed was the mastermind of 9-11. And he wanted to congratulate the FBI officers who had done this. And when he was told that actually it was two um, FBI agents, he was furious and said, what the hell, um, I want my guys out there straight away interrogating them. This is a CIA operation. This is a CIA detainee. And, um, and we should have CIA um, operatives um, interrogating him. So that that's, when, Jim was, that's when James Jim, Mitchell and the rest of the CIA team were sent to Thailand to take over. Yes. Jim, Jim was, there was a, a very sort of rapid two or three days where Jim was sent with, with a couple of CIA staffers down to see Martin Seligman, the learned helplessness expert, to make sure that um, that they could report back that learned helplessness would not cause permanent um, psychological damage. Um, he then came back up, raced up down the I-95 to um, Washington for a meeting at CIA headquarters where everyone was read in. Um, Bruce was with him, but Bruce was still a Department of Defense employee, so he had to leave. Um, so, and Jim was on the plane that night to Thailand. 
Abu Zubaydah was waterboarded 83 times in one month, hung naked from a ceiling, deprived of sleep for 11 straight days. Um, and that, uh, and, and although he and a number of other men uh, are still imprisoned in Guantanamo, they've never been charged with any crimes. No, and that, that's the big question of why has he not been released? Because, and, it, and, and it's not, it's not a case that he's never been charged with any crimes because, um, because he was tortured. It's because he's not guilty of the crimes that he was accused of by the, of, by the CIA. Are they afraid of what might come out during a trial? Yes, of course. There is that, obviously, as well, which is the main reason that the 9-11, um, the, the five men charged with 9-11, have not, their trial has not yet even started. Um, they've been in pre-trial hearings since, I think, the latest version is since 2012. Um, and, and I don't think it will ever really, it will ever get to trial because the government does not want, mm. even though <laughs> an awful lot of this information is out there, the government doesn't want... Um, to be cross-examined and scrutinised any further about torture. Um, and um, and it certainly doesn't want any of these men expressing what happened to them um, in any great detail. Well, it could have been worse. After looking at a number of options, including keeping them in detention or sending them to another country and prosecuting them, didn't one senior official ask, why don't we just kill them? Yes. I mean, this was a story told to me by Gus. Um, who had been asked to present um, his options to the top table of the seventh floor of CIA options for the endgame facility. And um, and he went through his four bullet points of send them to another country, keep them ourselves, uh, let them go. And, 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 and he got to the end of his fourth point and someone said to him, um, what about option number five? And he said, I haven't got, he looked down at his paper and said, I haven't got a number five. And um, someone in the room, and he didn't say who it was, um, said, "Well, we could always kill them." But he he did say it was it was a not a very good taste joke. So, so he and uh, a number of other men are still imprisoned in Guantanamo, even though they've never been charged with any crimes. Uh, again, because uh, it would be an embarrassment if they were they were put on trial. Um, it's different for every single detainee who's still there, and I think there are now 38 or 39. Um, I mean, there are a large number of detainees who have been approved for transfer, meaning that if somewhere could be found to send them, in theory, they would be let go, let go or sent to a third country for detention in a third country. Um, a number of detainees have been charged. Some are in pre-trial hearing proceedings, including uh, Nashery, who is um, alleged to have um, been a mastermind of the USS Cole attack, and there were hearings um, this week in which um, James Mitchell gave um, testimony once again, um, and uh, there are a couple of cases which have been resolved, but the, the detainees are still um, sitting there, waiting for a sort of deliberation of what their future will be, and where they would serve out their sentences, and then there are the forever prisoners, of which I think there are now five or six, um, and Abu Zubayda is the most prominent of those, but not the only one, but he is the one who's been there the longest. I mean, he, was, he was the first, first high-value detainee captured, and, um, and his case is basically the longest one that has never been determined. 
Regardless of its inability to establish Abu Zubaydah's involvement beyond a reasonable doubt, the CIA has secured authorization to imprison him for the rest of his life, I'm quoting, irrespective of his level of guilt, to be considered an unlawful enemy combatant forevermore, at least until the so-called war on terror is declared over. Yes, I mean, this, this goes back to a request that came from the Black Site team in uh, July 2002 that he would, before they started enhanced interrogation on him, the heavy stuff, the coercive stuff, the water causing, um, they wanted assurances from CIA headquarters that he would remain in incommunicado for the rest of his life. And uh, the reason they asked for that is, is that the CIA, uh, John Rizzo, the general counsel, acting general counsel, um, told me that um, <clears throat> he had been asked to go and obtain what they called a declination of from prosecution um, back in April 2002 because they were planning to unload everything on Abu Zubaydah right from the beginning. Um, and the Justice Department wouldn't give that. They would, uh, I mean, I think it's Michael Chertoff in the Justice Department described it as a request to get a, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, and, and various Justice Department officials said that they were put under huge amounts of pressure by the CIA, boxed in by alleged evidence that this was a necessary um, course to take. Um, but ultimately, the Justice Department refused to give a declination of prosecution. And so the Black Site team um, said they were not prepared to commence with enhanced interrogation unless they had an assurance, a written assurance from headquarters that Abu Zubaydah would never get out. And they got that. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the Drowning Pools uh, version of Bodies, and we'll explain why we played that a little later in the show. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Kathy Scott Clark. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book that she co-authored with Adrian Levy. The Forever Prisoner, the full and searing account of the CIA's most controversial covert program. Um, you can do that by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's given then the number to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 during today's show. And we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large. And we thank you very much. And uh, returning to now to Kathy Scott Clark, who with Adrian Levy 
He's the author of a number of books, including The Exile, Deception, The Siege, The Amber Room, and The Stone of Heaven. Uh, and they uh, have won the One World Award for Foreign Reporting in 2009, were voted One World Media Press Journalists of the Year, won the 2016 CWA Gold Digger for nonfiction. And uh, I just wonder, you were able to... Um, speak to a number of people secretly, including Abu Zubaydah. How, did you, how were you able to get through to him? Um, I can't really get into that because it would compromise people. But um, let's say it was all in a letter-written form. I, I didn't ring him up on the phone and say, hi, how are you? Uh-huh. It's a very circuitous um, method of communication through writing. Well, now he's at Guantanamo. Uh, uh, didn't a former commander call Guantanamo a warehouse for Mickey Mouse detainees of no real value to the government? That was the um, the first um, Joint Task Force um, commander, um, who uh, Dunleavy, Dunleavy, yes, who um, was responsible for setting up the first um, war on terror. Uh, detention centre at Guantanamo in January 2002, and um, and he was getting they they he and his team were dealing with um, the hundreds of prisoners that were being sent from uh, sorry detainees that were being sent from Afghanistan, um, the vast majority of whom were um, farmers and um, innocent um, people who had been picked up on the basis of um, the US military raining um, down coffee literally uh, papers flyers saying if you if you find if you provide um, evidence against a a suspect war on terror suspect then you'll get five thousand dollar reward so hundreds of people were picked up and lots of kind of old village animosities were executed in terms of people being being falsely alleged to be connected to al-qaeda or the taliban and all these people were shipped out they were they were processed in uh, bagram and um, the CIA was present, but only interested if, if someone of, of high value um, was, was identified during the initial interrogation um, in processing. And the vast majority of them were shipped out to uh, Guantanamo beginning in, on the 11th of January 2002. And, um, and uh, Major General Dunleavy rightly said that, well, slightly in, very insultingly said that they were Mickey Mouse detainees because they didn't know anything. They hadn't done anything. Isn't there, is there a racial or racist aspect to this story? Didn't Absolutely. senior Bush administration officials refer to Abu Zubaydah as Abu Butthead and Boo Boo? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a great deal of anger and, and wanting to take revenge and a genuine fear that a second wave was coming, but also a, a terrible disconnect in misunderstanding the Arab world misunderstanding the racial differences. I'm not making any excuses at all for anyone involved in, in the 9-11 attacks, which were absolutely horrific, but I think every Muslim became a, a potential suspect in, in the aftermath. And, and, he, and I remember um, remember reports at the time of, kind of Sikhs in America being um, sort of mob-handed in the street because they were wearing turbans and people didn't know the difference and, and equally stupid stuff going on in, in the UK and other countries. But, um, yeah, I think there was, there was a great fear of anyone that was brown, especially Arab, Arab-speaking, 
and the total misunderstanding of, of how that world worked, how, how people communicated, how, how Al-Qaeda worked, how, um, who was in Al-Qaeda, what was the hierarchy of Al-Qaeda, what was the connection between Al-Qaeda and, and other terrorist groups, was a facilitator interested in facilitating a jihad training camp the same as someone planning 9-11. I mean, I think it was all very, very mixed up and there was a lot of xenophobia at the centre of it. Uh, Abu Zubaydah remains in Guantanamo, even though a 2014 Senate investigation concluded that the case against him had been largely fabricated. Um, How political is all this? Didn't uh, the Obama administration uh, break up this this program? And... uh, they, they broke up. I mean, they they, they cancelled Jim's contract. So the Mitchell Jesson Associates was a company formed in 2004 um, to basically run all the black sites and um, and continued working and providing 100% of guards and 80% of debriefers, as they called interrogators, um, to the U.S. government, to the CIA. Sorry, up until January 2000, December 2008. Um, which begs the question of where were they working if there weren't any black sites after September 2006? My answer would be they were running Camp 7 in Guantanamo. But uh, yes, I mean, they, they lost their contract when, um, when President Obama came in. Um, and, um, and, and, and at that point, um, the, the high value detainees in Guantanamo were definitely kind of officially being looked after by um, Department of Defense. But wasn't much of the torture work done by people who continue the work today, most of them working for private companies that were formed by CIA retirees with government contracts? Um, I, I, I've not explored what people are doing today, but, I mean, a lot of people who went to work for Mitchell Justin Associates had previously worked in the CIA program as staffers. Well, I've read that they're paid $250 an hour, which comes to $2,000 a day. That's a lot of money. It is. I mean, it'd be nice if I earned that much money um, or anything near. But um, yeah, I mean, but, uh, I mean, Jim was asked about this during um, a pre-trial hearing in Guantanamo in January 2020, and he said, "You've got to pay them the same as Blackwater security contractors. They're <clears throat> they're potentially under threat of being killed at any any time, and and people are not willing to do that kind of work unless they're properly recompensed." Now, you, in your book, you describe the torture cells and uh, what happened uh, from both Mitchell's and Abu Zubaydah's uh, perspectives. How different are they? Totally different. Um, totally different. I mean, they, they talk about the same events and the same things happening, but I guess it's inevitable that the, the man who's on top is is going to see it from a different perspective from the man who's on the floor covered in vomit and, and has got stars in his eyes because he's just had his head bashed against the wall the last two hours. Um, I mean, there's a lot of... Who knows who's telling the truth completely? I don't think either person is t- totally being truthful. Um, I, th- I, I believe a lot of what James Mitchell said is uh, true. Um, I believe a lot of what Abu Zubaydah has said is true, but not everything on either part. Well, you uh, 
James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen uh, broke Justice Department rules on many occasions while they were torturing Abu Zubaydah. How did other psychologists uh, and medical staff react to learning about that? Did, were they horrified or did they collude in covering the whole thing up? A bit of both. Um, I mean, there were there were side cables sent back by one nurse physician's assistant from the Thai black site during the waterboarding period of Abu Zubaydah, and they started and they were going back to the office medical services. So they were not going through the correct channel, um, and they got reprimanded as a result. That person. And they, these reports were the daily, the three times a day reports back saying what was going on. And they start off quite upbeat. That so we're starting off on every day this morning and we think it's going to go on a long time. And they're going to unload all the techniques on him in one go, in one sort of session. And they're going to rapidly um, go through them and get some water pulling very quickly. By like day three, um, the same physician's assistant was saying that there's people here who are crying and breaking down and asking to be transferred out, and, and we, none of us realised how quickly Abu Zubaydah would break on the waterboard or reach learned helplessness, um, and we're worried that if we go any further, we're going to kill him. Um, and, and, and Jim and Bruce also reported back that, that, that they were worried that things were getting out of hand, and they tried twice. To um, ask her supporters to give them permission to stop. First of all, they put together a video, as Jim calls it, with some best of tapes of um, videos of, of some of the worst moments, which they sent, which was viewed in a, co- a video conference um, call with headquarters, and they thought that, that would be the end of it. And headquarters looked at the material and said, nope, you need to keep going. Um, because the headquarters um, targeters and subject matter experts, who Jim describes as middle management, um, were convinced that Abu Zubaydah knew he had that nugget of information about the next wave, um, and he was resisting. And Jim and Bruce um, later on went back to headquarters along with the sorry, reconnect, reconnected with the headquarters along with the medical staff and everyone else at Black Site and said, "You've got to send someone over here." Sort of going to see it because we're worried. Um, and so the headquarters sent over a team of four people, and after they watched waterboarding and others, they were nearly killed a second time, um, they gave permission to stop. No, but, but to, but to, sorry, to answer your, your direct question, I mean, I was very shocked during the course of making the film and writing and researching the book, which has taken five years, that I never once got a medic who had been involved in the Black Site program to talk. It's been 20 years now since uh, he was captured and, and initially tortured, and yet much of the story is uh, hasn't been told until your book. Why do you think that is? This is uh, pretty shocking stuff, and it goes against um, the very sense of American what American justice is all about. Um. The only answer I can really give is that I don't, people don't want to hear this stuff. They don't want to think about this stuff. It's better if, if actually what the CIA, what the Black Site team requested and the CIA approved continues to be the case, which is that, that these people remain incommunicado. I mean, some of them do, absolutely do deserve to be tried and convicted, um, but people like Abizabeda, it's just better if he just disappears because people, I would say the general public 
um, and I'm not just talking about American gender, people generally do not want to be confronted with the fact that, that, people, that people in government and senior positions in government torture other, other human beings. It's not, it's not a nice story. Um, so it's better just to cover it up and keep it quiet. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Kathy Scott Clark, co-author with Adrian Levy of The Forever Prisoner, the full and searing account of the CIA's most controversial covert program, published by Atlantic Monthly Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Wasn't this book a primary source for the recent HBO Max film that was directed about this that was directed by Alex Gibney? Yes, I, I worked with Alex on the film. I was one of the producers, and um, and the book actually came out of the film because I did so much research for the film. I thought, well, and the film has, can only have so much information in it, otherwise it would just drive a viewer crazy, um, that I thought there's, there's a lot of material that is not usable. We couldn't use it in the film, which is two hours long, so I turned all of my research into a book version of the film. So, yes, they were very closely tied in. What kinds of things couldn't be used in the film? Just the excruciating detail that I live in. <laughs> it's not something that you can kind of, you can, um, you can put on, on a big screen and expect people to watch it. Um, a, a, lot of, a lot of correspondence with um, Abel Bader, I guess, um, who um, explains a lot about his life um, before and after jihad and later. And also um, beyond the, the first black site, Thailand, um, I followed his story and that, that of other high-value deten- detainees right up until the present day, whereas the film very much focused on what happened in Thailand. Now, last month, newly declassified documents detailed how Amar al-Baluji, a detainee at a CIA black site in Afghanistan, was used as a prop for interrogators in training to receive certification in interrogations. And the torture he received led to brain damage. Yep. Yes. I mean, I I spoke to someone recently, actually, who was part of his his team, and, um, and, and he explained to me that... If Amar Baluchi is asked to write a letter or, or write anything, like a page and a half, it takes him a couple of days to, actually, to concentrate enough to be able to write. Um, and, and I know that, they, that that team has has, um, has had a determination that he's suffering from um, brain damage as a result of his treatment and obviously long-term PTSD as well. And um, but that, I mean, that training prop... Um, idea um, on the job training is what it was officially called by the CIA was something that was proposed by Bruce, Bruce Jessen um, and it was discussed in great detail during um, Jim Mitchell's hearing in January 2020 and, um, and, and evidenced by tons of declassified cables and information that, that this indeed happened at what was called the salt pit in, fact, in Afghanistan <clears throat> and I believe at other sites as well, but not not the same level of brutality, um, because the idea was that if you practiced, they needed more interrogators. They couldn't just rely on Bruce and Jim to do everything, because more and more detainees were coming in, high-value detainees. Mm. So if they trained people and got them to practice on low or medium-value detainees, then they wouldn't mess things up when they got to the 
sort of top three, top four. Um, and Jim was asked if, if he would have supported um, on-the-job training um, when he was talking in January 2020, and he said he would not be uh, against it, but that he would have done it differently and would have put um, experienced people in with um, the new people rather than having one trainer, in the case of Amar Bellucci, one trainer and at least six trainees who lined up to have a go at walling him over hours and hours and hours. And, and I know that he describes, he doesn't describe, Jim describes it as bouncing a detainee's shoulders off, off a wall, a prefabricated wall, which is not, not concrete, so it's supposedly less painful. Um, <clears throat> whereas I believe that Amal Bucci describes it as being slammed into a wall. And, and I know from Abu Zubaydah that, that every time it happened to him, he, he describes it as being lost in space and having stars in front of his eyes and literally collapsing on the floor. Hmm. Not nice. Well, don't you claim that uh, the psychologist we're, uh, we've been discussing, James Mitchell, um, was uh, that there's a link between him and the other creators of the CIA's torture program and the abuses that took place at the Abu Ghraib prison where detainees endured physical, psychological, and sexual abuse, including the use of electric shock and mock executions at the hands of U.S. forces? That, I mean, that's, that's a lot there, lots to unpick there. I mean, there were um, there was threats with drills and um, guns um, done by an untrained CIA interrogator on um, Abdul Rahim Al Nashiri in Poland, but that was nothing to do, Jim. Hmm. Um, Mitchell, sorry, and uh, there were um, allegations and official complaints made about another, um, the chief of interrogations, who was someone called Charlie Wise, who died. Um, and he was accused by Jim Mitchell and Bruce Jesson and other people of putting broomsticks behind people's knees when they were in city and then making them lean backwards and pulling their arms up in a kind of strapado position behind their backs and kind of hanging them backwards. Um, that also was not it was witnessed by Jim, um, and he complained that it was not um, a technique that um, Jim or Bruce used themselves. When you talk about um, Abu Ghraib. I mean, that was obviously military um, interrogators there and Bagram and in abusing in Guantanamo and in, um, in yes, in Bagram. But, I mean, my, I argue in the book that um, that what, what Dr. Jesson and Dr. Mitchell um, put together for the CIA um, became like a virus and morphed into the military and... In various ways, because some of the trainers who trained CIA staff um, then went to train Guantanamo staff, and um, everyone in Afghanistan stayed in the same um, place in uh, the um, the, uh, the Ariana Hotel in Kabul, which had a bar called the Taliban. And so all of the CIA interrogators and, and military interrogators would all get together in the evening and drink and exchange news and interrogation tactics and techniques, sorry. And um, and Bruce Jessen also, because he was still with the Department of Defense, he put together training packages for um, for interrogation programs and um, 
detention setups for the military, which was, went to Guantanamo and then went to Bagram and then ended up at Abu Ghraib. So uh, Jim, when one of the first things he, Jim ever said to me was, I don't want to be connected to a film where I'm connected to Abu Ghraib. And he is not connected to Abu Ghraib and has no role or responsibility for what happened at Abu Ghraib. But, but the problem is that these, these secret CIA techniques were not so secret and, and the news spread of how successful they'd been that everybody wanted to have a go at them. Well, and the materials, materials written by, by Bruce and other people that, that he and Jim used to work with in the SEER program ended up in these other locations. So there's, there's a connect but a disconnect. Well, we have just a little over a minute left, but uh, James Mitchell has been criticized by Ali Sufan, the FBI agent who was the first one to uh, to interrogate Abu Zubaydah. But don't you suggest that uh, Mitchell and uh, his partner, Jessen, are less the villains of this story than victims? They did what they did under enormous pressures in the sincere mm -hmm. belief that they were helping to avert terrorist attacks. But perhaps George W. Bush and his deputies were the most culpable. I, I actually think the senior management at the CIA is responsible. If anyone has to be held responsible, it's the senior staff management at the CIA. I, I, I don't believe that, um, that the National Security Council or, or, or the President or, or Secretary of State. I think the CIA lied to them as well. Um, and, I, and I do agree. I do believe Jim when he says that he was doing what he was told to do. And I think he, he and Bruce created something that spun out of control. And they were then um, forced into a corner that they had, they had to go with it. They had to produce the results. And it was CIA headquarters putting them under intense pressure. Repeatedly, and, and I have to leave it there, unfortunately. My great thanks to you for telling this story, this story that probably should have gotten a lot more attention up until now, but uh, your book is an eye-opener. Kathy Scott Clark is co-author with Adrian Levy of The Forever Prisoner, the full and searing account of the CIA's most controversial covert program, published by Atlantic Monthly Press. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you would like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to, to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you just don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more 
in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Forever Prisoner by Kathy Scott Clark and Adrian Levy. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'll say thank you to anyone um, who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 or more with a BAI tote bag. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Again, one more time, the number to keep this 100% listener-sponsored radio station, the only one on the New York dial that is alive and thriving, call 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI.org. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow for my discussion with John Pomfret about his book, From Warsaw with Love.